Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the second Signals to Danger REIB Roundup of the Year. These roundups are the episodes of Signals to Danger where we look at current affairs in the world of railway safety, with a focus on the work of the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. My name is Dan Fox, and I am the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast, and uh, I'm a railwayman in my day-to-day life, currently expanding my knowledge as a driver manager, and boy did I find out that I had a lot to learn. Let's get stuck straight into the roundup. This week, we're going to be taking a quick look at the new investigations that the RIB has announced since last time we were together, then a quick look at the first report that's been released this year, covering a train striking debris from a bridge, and then we'll close out this episode with a quick chat about why it is that I make these podcasts. Let's get started then, moving swiftly into the first part of the episode. Since last time we were together, the REIB has released four new stories, all of them covering incidents which have taken place on the network, and one of which we've already discussed at a bit of length last time we had a roundup, and there's no prizes, well, for guessing which one that is. The first, however, was from the 12th of January, I'm going to look at that to start with. At around 6.03 on the 19th of December 2023, a train travelling between Doncaster and London King's Cross struck parts of a temporary road rail vehicle access point 
which is a bit of a mouthful when you're trying to say it for a podcast, which had been left on the track near to Highdyke Junction on the East Coast Main Line. The uh, temporary access point had been used the previous night as part of an inspection of overhead railway power lines. No one was injured as a result of the collision and the train didn't derail, however it did cause damage to the equipment on the underside of the train which meant it was unable to continue in service. It's, um, it's a fairly serious near miss by all accounts. In order to get road rail vehicles such as we've talked about last roundabout, roundabout, last roundup, onto the line, there is a requirement to use access points. Now, you can think of these as being quite similar to level crossings in that they are a road deck type structure up to rail height and it allows for wheel flanges to pass through the grooves left in the decking in most cases. They're not inherently dangerous, as many things on the railway are inherently dangerous. Certainly, if you look at that level crossing similarity, there are Plenty of places where these are traversed several times an hour at speeds up to 125 miles an hour. So the the design principle is fine. And road rail access points themselves. Well, there's plenty of places on the network where they are permanent installations. So what was the issue here? This wasn't a permanent access point. These are built and designed to remain in place during the passage of trains. And well, they're also an asset. That needs maintaining and checking and clearly we wouldn't just be able to have them everywhere just in case we needed to get vehicles on and off. Who knows where the work's going to be required and it's not really reasonable to run one of these road rail vehicles 10 or 15 miles along the line from the nearest one. So to allow access outside of those permanent ones, temporary solutions are used. Invariably, they're nowhere near as sturdy as something which is designed to stay in place, not least because they need transporting to and from the site, and um, they're not designed for the strain of constant prolonged use, and actually not either for the effect of trains passing over them at speed. One such temporary system that I found advertises a form system, man-portable, and which can be installed and removed in minutes. It's clearly a design meant for lightweight vehicles. Another one I found, a company called Thompson Rail advertises the Traxess system. That's tracks with an X, which is a heavy-duty steel construction composed of temporary ramps and plates, which is a little bit more hard-wearing and can take much heavier vehicles. From that RIB News article, it's quite slim on information, and it's not clear what type of system was in use, but it is clear that it shouldn't have still been there when services resumed. Following that preliminary work that the branch has already undertaken, they've told us that they're going to go down the safety digest route with this one. So let's wait and see what more details come out following that. And of course, we will be discussing this in an episode further down the line, terrible railway pun, when that's released. Moving on to the second one then. That, uh, this is a, an article that came out on the 22nd of January and covers another near miss, this time near to Nottingham Station. Around 10.17 on the 1st of January, 2024, so New Year's Day, a passenger train reported a near miss with the driver of a freight train that had stopped just east of Nottingham Station. At the time of the near miss, the freight had been stopped so it could be examined by the driver. As part of the examination, the driver used the adjacent line to walk back along their train. And as they did so, a passenger train approached them at about 37 miles an hour. The passenger train driver saw 
freight train driver and that he was in an unsafe position, hit the brakes, used the train's warning horn, which gave the driver enough time to move off the line and not be struck. Several different things could have gone wrong with this one. Uh, one would imagine that if the driver of the freight had been supposed to be on that opposite line, that uh, a line block would have been put in place to protect him. What is clear is that something very much went wrong because a member of staff should never have been walking on a railway line that was open to traffic. There are controls within the industry which exist to prevent this. Again, very limited detail. Um, there always is with these articles, but more will definitely come out in the long run. Branch will again be publishing a safety digest on this one, which does tell us something about the issues involved. Um, talked about this previously, digests are used in two circumstances when the safety learning has been identified by a previous investigation. So it's something the branch has already covered in detail. Or when it relates to compliance or, well, non-compliance, more specifically, with existing rules. If I had to put money on it, which I never would, I'd wonder whether this one might boil down to an element of non-compliance, but that is with no information whatsoever. It might be completely proven wrong when the digest comes out. So as ever, we'll wait and see. The third article that's been released, and indeed the first one that is going to lead into a full investigation, is of a more tragic nature. It was released the day after, on the 23rd of January. At around 14.45 on the 26th of December 2023, a passenger fell from a platform and onto the track at Stratford Station on the London Underground's Jubilee Line. The passenger remained on the track and was struck possibly by a number of trains, before being discovered by London Underground station staff. The accident resulted in fatal injuries being sustained by the passenger. And the death of passengers on the railway is always a tragic occurrence, and there are lessons, always, to learn afterwards. Zero harm isn't just a principle that exists on the operational side. We, as an industry, would never want passengers to not make it home. The branch tells us in their article that the investigation is going to seek to identify the sequence of events that led to the accident. It will also consider the actions of those involved and anything which might have influenced them. The management of staff involved in the accident, including their training and competence. The arrangements that are in place to manage and control the risks of such accidents. And as we always see, any underlying management factors. And that is... Um, Pretty much everything that the RIB article tells us, but there is a little bit more detail out there in other news articles. The Edinburgh Evening News reveals that the unfortunate victim of this incident was an Edinburgh-born pensioner, 72-year-old Brian Mitchell. It does go on to say that police are now asking for help to trace Mr Mitchell's next of kin or other family members. A BTP spokesperson, British Transport Police, said that despite extensive inquiries, Officers have been unable to trace his next of kin or any other family members to inform them of the sad news. So they're appealing for any relatives or anyone who may have information about his family to come forward and assist their investigation. And you know what? Just on the off chance, I'm going to include in here that anyone with information is asked to contact BTP by texting 61016 or calling 0800 40 50 40. And they're going to want to quote reference 137 of the 26th of the 12th, 2023. It is a sad instant, um, like I said, and again, it's one that we're going to revisit once the investigation report is released.
finally, in respect of those news articles and announcements of investigations and digests, we are going to revisit something that we've already discussed. That is the uh, the case of Brody Ferry's foliage versus a HST and her fiberglass cab. We did, well, I did, wax lyrical um, a little bit about my thoughts on the matter last time we had a roundup and I alluded to the potential consequences which this accident could have had. It's clear that I'm not the only person that acknowledged this potential outcome as on the 23rd of January the RAIB also published a second article stating that at 13.17 on the 27th of December 2023 a passenger train travelling between Balmossi and Broughty Ferry on the Perth to Aberdeen line struck a tree which had fallen across the track from outside of the railway. The train was travelling at 84 miles an hour when the collision happened. The driver of the train made an emergency brake application and took shelter behind the seat immediately before the impact. On the day of the accident, Storm Garrett had brought heavy rain and strong winds across Scotland and other parts of the UK. The driver received minor injuries as a result of the accident, and the driving cab of the train was heavily damaged, disabling the train and requiring its passengers to be evacuated. This incident is worthy, it would seem, of a full investigation, and it's one that I'm somewhat happy to see taking place for all of the reasons that I've previously floated regards to these incredible but undeniably dated trains. The investigation is going to be covering the management of train operations during adverse weather conditions, the arrangements in place to manage and control the risk from trees falling onto the railway, how information received from members of the public relating to railway safety is handled, the crashworthiness of the train and any underlying management factors. Now there are some interesting factors here under the microscope and uh, I am glad and unsurprised in equal measure to see crashworthiness on the cards there. But there is also potential hints of some systemic failures. To include handling of reports of safety risks from a member of the public suggests that this system may not have been as robust as it should have been on the day. And this is also suggested in some news articles have come out in recent days, spawned by statements made by ASLEF, the Train Drivers Union, in Scotland. According to an article I found on STV's website, as left the Rail Drivers Union told STV News that a member of the public called Network Rail's Control Centre, which is outsourced in Milton Keynes, to report that a tree had fallen from their garden onto the railway line. The union claimed that it took the control team more than 10 minutes to contact their Scottish counterparts and that it also took them seven attempts to get through. Kevin Lindsay, that's Aslef's Scottish organiser, said that this is an accident that was totally preventable. It's just negligence on behalf of Network Rail and their contractors. I think it's scandalous. It's not long ago that I was standing talking about the horrific events at Carmont. Here we have another HST train involved in a crash which could have led to the loss of life to the train driver and passengers. That is not acceptable and Network Rail needs to be held accountable. Definitely not biased. In the article, there is also a response from Network Rail commenting saying that safety is our top priority and we invest millions each year in our trackside to remove vegetation and other risks to the railway. 
We are working with the Rail Accident Investigation Branch to provide all available information to support their investigation and are leading a separate industry review of the incident with partners from across Scotland's railway. We are grateful to members of the public who report potential issues on the railway and would continue to encourage anyone who spots a safety concern to contact our 24-hour helpline on 0345 711 4141. This apparently is the episode where I give out a lot of telephone numbers, by the way. There are a few really concerning points here, certainly, and it's important that they are valid and need addressing urgently, but we have to keep in mind that this is the subject of a current investigation. Full detail will be shared when that report is published. Now, that doesn't mean that there are, if there are any pressing issues that are found that they will have to just sit and wait until the investigation is concluded. That's not how it works. If you remember from a lot of the reports, there is a section called actions already taken. That means that whenever the issue becomes made aware, it, it does get action. So in the Carmack report, there was quite a large area of the report that detailed what had already been done by the time the report was published. So Speculation on what is going to be in that report is probably not the right way to go, but lessons that are being learned will be actioned as they're learned. We must all be confident of that. So absolutely, definitely one we are going to pick up again going forwards, following the saga, I guess. But that does wrap it up for new investigations and digests. And now it is time for us to move on and jump into a concluded report. Let's look then at the first full report that has been issued in 2024, which means it is entitled, well numbered rather, 01-2024. It's probably not going to be the last one that we see, but it is the first, and it covers a train striking debris at Yarnton near Hamborough, Oxfordshire, on the 10th of February, 2023. Now, we did speak briefly about this one before while it was in the offing, but let's refresh with the summary section from the report. Just after 18.35 on the February the 10th, 2023, the driver of the 1734 Great Western Railway service from Paddington to Hereford reported striking an object on the single line at Yarnton, between Oxford and Hamborough. The train had struck brick rubble from a collapsed wing wall, part of a bridge carrying a local road over the railway. The train was travelling at about 58 miles an hour when the collision occurred and sustained damage but did not derail. There were no injuries to train crew or passengers on the service. The train in question was a GWR Class 800 running in diesel mode on the single track section and following the incident it was found that there was damage to broken fiberglass panel under the nose cone, displacement of the safety equipment on the leading bogey and impact marks on the obstacle deflector, lifeguard and leading wheel set. Not a great result, definitely not the worst either. Luckily, the driver described a pile of bricks 10 metres long by 2.5 metres high and we've seen other circumstances recently where debris has led to derailments, um, notably places like Carmont. Following the incident, the Cotswold line was reopened on the 12th of February with a temporary speed restriction in place. 
This occurred after some of the exposed cutting slope had been removed and a watch person put in place to observe elements of the bridge that Network Rail had concerns about. Later the same day, that watch person reported further ground movement. Earth had started to spill over a concrete barrier that had been placed to protect the track and uh, concerns about the parapet meant that the line was blocked again. It was reopened again on the 22nd of February after some extensive work had taken place to stabilise the slope, the road and utility pipes under the road surface. The road reopened with single lane running under traffic light control on the 28th of February 2023. So in a report about earthworks, let's ask what the branch found when they started digging. The immediate cause was fairly plain, as it always is, namely that the southwest wing wall from the Yarnton Road Bridge collapsed onto the track, leaving debris which could be struck by passing trains. The collapse of the southwest wing wall occurred after an earlier train had passed the site 19 minutes before the collision without incident. The collapse was not detected in the short intervening period, and the driver of One Whiskey 03 did not have any time to take action before the collision occurred. Causal factors, as ever, are really where the detail lies, and the first of this is going to be that the southwest wing wall was no longer able to carry the load imposed by the embankment because it had insufficient structural capacity to do so. The most recent examination of the earthworks here was in January 2022, and this gave the embankment an earthworks hazard category of A. That category is related to the likelihood that the asset might fail, and A is the least likely. Probably worth asking some questions about that grading, considering... In fact, the report goes on to tell us that the wall had been described as being in poor condition in reports and had indeed deteriorated over time. The bridge was constructed in 1853 using relatively low quality bricks and has needed numerous repairs over its lifetime. There's no records of repair work prior to 2013, but examination reports and photographs show that brickwork has previously been removed and replaced all over the structure. Bridges on Network Rail are given a score known as a BCMI, which is the abbreviation of the episode, or Bridge Condition Marking Index, as a result of the examinations that they receive, and 40 or below, well that warrants more frequent monitoring. Yarnton had a BCMI of only 28, and this particular wing wall, only 20. Since 2014, the interval between detailed examinations was scheduled as three years, plus or minus three months, a bit of flexibility for schedules and things like that to align. And looking through the records, this schedule frequency was more or less achieved with um, detailed examination reports of the bridge available for 2002, 2006, 2011, 14, 18 and 21. These were interspersed with visual examination reports on an approximately annual basis available from 2009 onwards. Each examination report identified that the wing walls were in poor condition and the southwest wall had a long-standing bulge but little or no change was identified between those successive reports. In January 2023, the examiner undertaking a planned visual examination noted that the bulging appeared to have increased and that fractures had opened up. The failure occurred less than three weeks after that examination, while the report was still under review by the engineers. 
Now, there is a process to directly notify Network Rail asset engineers if they identify a serious issue that they believe requires urgent attention, but this issue was not felt to be of a serious enough nature to require the immediate response. There's probably a line about hindsight being 2020, which we could interleave into the narrative here, but it does feel a little on the nose, so I'm only going to gently allude to it like that. Add into all of this that the wall actually had a hidden defect that the engineers weren't aware of, and it changes the game a little. Examiners and asset engineers assumed that the wing wall was the normal form of construction for a retaining wall. At an unknown date in the past, though, work had been undertaken to repair and possibly strengthen the wall. This could have been achieved by adding additional brickwork to increase the wall's thickness or by recasing it, and that repair should have created a stronger structure, interlocking the new and older brickwork. However, a post-accident inspection of the partly collapsed wall, well, that showed that it had... um, had an original structural wall that was hidden behind a skin wall just over 100 millimeters thick. So the original wall was behind the wall that they could actually see. And that left an internal cavity of a void again of about 10 centimeters thick. Bricks that were laid perpendicular to the face of the wall had been broken in half, and those half bricks known as snap headers were used in place of standard length bricks. So it would have saved on material, but it disguised the fact that new brickwork was not connected to the structural wall behind it. The net effect of this was that the outer wall hid the inner wall and its condition was thoroughly unknown without taking the wall down and looking at it, you'd never know. In fact, you wouldn't even know that there was two walls to check. And this in turn had a knock-on effect that was related to repair work that had been undertaken a decade ago. In 2011, a detailed examination report identified deterioration of the walls and the examining engineer included a recommendation to take down and reconstruct the bulging and severely fractured wing wall or drill drill and anchor bulging areas and pin and grout brickwork fractures. Fractures to hold the rate of deterioration. And in 2013, a contractor came along and carried out pin and grout repairs to stabilise those fractures. So the way they do that, Drill a series of holes at 45 degrees either side of the fracture. Then insert a 6mm rod, stainless steel bar, and grout it. Successful pin and grout repairs rely on stronger masonry being present behind a fracture to tie the damaged area into. And if there had been no void behind the outer skin of the wall, then this type of repair would have worked quite well to stabilise it. But we now know something the contractor didn't and that is that there was a void between the two walls. Another causal factor that was raised was the fact that the risk assessment process doesn't lead to effective control measures being put in place to address the risks. Primarily because examiners didn't have an effective method for monitoring the defamation. Variances had been recorded as low as 10 millimeters um, in the size of the bulging from one report to the other. But Without using electronic or specialised measuring equipment, this is actually really hard to to measure, to quantify. The role performed by an examining engineer is entirely dependent on that engineer's observations, measurements and photographs that they've taken. And engineers, when they go along to these sites, will often compare 
the most recent report with earlier reports as part of the review process. They'll look at ones that have been issued versus the photographs that they've taken now. But that's really difficult when these photographs are taken from a range of locations at different angles. And let's not pretend that every photo is going to be ideally lit or in high resolution. It's just a really challenging assessment to make, especially when you're talking about variations as low as 10 millimeters. Another probable factor here is that the risk scores that were attached to defects didn't actually reflect the level of risk that was present. And we can probably take that as red considering the wall collapsed, but the branch does go into a little bit more detail on this one. The risk score is derived using a severity factor. So it ranges from one, which is the onset of degradation, 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 to five, which is structure unsafe. A defect for which a foreseeable complex of consequence of failure is line and or road closure. Now that would score four. That's multiplied using a five by five risk matrix. So you times the severity by the likelihood factor and the likelihood factor is one to five, unlikely to certain. A defect where failure is considered possible would score three. The result of multiplying the two factors together is your defect risk score, which ranges from one to 25. Hope you're all following that. If anyone's ever done a risk assessment, um, it's just that principle, severity times by risk. It's fairly standard fare in that field. The issues with the wing wall, they were repeatedly assessed with a severity score of two, which obviously brings down the defect risk score because you're only ever timesing it by two, when in fact it shouldn't have been less than four, considering that road or line closures were an obvious risk. With a severity factor of four and a likelihood factor of three, that defect risk score of 12 would have been in place in the 2014 examination report. And you would have got 16 from the 18 and 21 detailed examination reports as well. And this might, might have resulted in action being taken more comprehensively or sooner. The last thing that I'll touch on in this one is that in November of 2022, a representative from Oxfordshire County Council's highways team contacted Network Rail and reported that cracks were appearing in the road surface on the embankment of the bridge. The information, including photographs, was forwarded to the relevant teams for consideration and Network Rail subsequently informed the council's representative that the bridge was due to have major work to its structure in 2023 and confirmed that it was undertaking inspections of the embankment. And in fact, in May 2022, Network Rail had appointed Sisgrail, a civil engineering contractor, to undertake masonry repairs for 16 structures, including... Yarnton Road Bridge. But, and it is a big but, in January of 2023, Network Rail rescoped the renewal program as there was insufficient budget available in year five of control period six to complete all of the projects within the contract. Projects that were in progress and had possessions booked or were assessment driven were prioritised for completion. Yarnton Road was identified as medium priority based on the overall condition of the bridge. And actually, in February of 2023, very shortly before the collapse occurred, 
Network Rail instructed CISC that work at Yarnton Roadbridge was not to be progressed due to project rescoping. The start date for the Yarnton Road project was provisionally moved to 2029, which would be the start of control period 8. 2029. And whoever said that budgets don't have an impact on safety? Recommendations from the report then very slightly abridged for wordiness's sake. Firstly, that Network Rail should review the relevant standards and procedures that deal with the specifying of repairs to masonry to ensure that complex defects such as bulging are subject to appropriate review and further investigation. Just to make sure that suitable repairs are undertaken and it should specifically consider how the repair of masonry which is already in a poor condition is undertaken. Second recommendation also to Network Rail is that they should develop and implement improved methods for managing defects in masonry structures such as wing walls to gain a better understanding of the asset. Third, again to Network Rail, should review the training and working practices associated with allocating risk scores and the examination report review process. And that's to ensure that defects affecting parts of structures which could present a direct risk to the railway are given an appropriate risk metric severity factor. We've talked about that already. And finally, last but not least again for Network Rail, is that they should review their bridge assets and establish if they have clearly identified those wing walls which may fail with a potentially high safety consequence. Also that they should consider the benefits of introducing a wing wall risk tool to uh, assess load paths and the consequences of failure. And that's just to improve their knowledge of these assets. They're fair recommendations and there's a bit more detail in the actual report. Like I said, that's slightly abridged. But if you do want the full detail, then I would recommend, as I ever do, a quick read of the report itself. It really actually isn't the most taxing one. It's only 45 pages. So if you want to ease yourself into what RAIB reports are like to read, that's not a bad one to start with. Learning points were again identified as part of the report. It's a, a key part of that publication and one that I actually really enjoy. I think it's it, it's a very good addition to them. Uh, there were four of them again. And these were that infrastructure managers and examination contractors are reminded of the value of understanding whether a masonry fracture is stable. Um, and that requires a mechanism to accurately determine whether movement's occurring, for example, by installing tabs. Tabs are a really, really easy way of assessing a fracture in stonework. You basically put a bit of mortar over the crack and you mark it with a date. That way, when you come back and examine it next time, if that crack is open, if that mortar tab that you've put over the crack is broken, you know it's shifted since that point and it gives you a gauge for how much it has shifted. Second learning point is that railway undertaking should re-examine interim risk mitigation methods, which again is a bit of a mouthful, if the timing of large-scale work changes. So this exact situation, there must be a re-examination of interim measures. So we know that this bridge was supposed to be being renewed last year. A month or so after that was cancelled, the bridge wing wall collapsed. There must be a control in place. There must be a risk mitigation method if you're not going to be able to do that work when you said you were going to. Uh, third one is that it's important to clear vegetation from a structure in advance of a detailed examination. And there were some of the examinations of this bridge that weren't undertaken properly. 
because there was vegetation growing on the structure. Clearly, you can't examine what you can't see. It, it's fairly uh, self-explanatory, that one. And the final one, leaving the standard name in, because I know you like at least one an episode, or maybe it's me that likes at least one an episode. It is important that examiners follow the requirement in Network Rail Standard NR-L3-CIV-006-2A, Structures, Tunnels and Operational Property Examinations, Part 2A, Detailed Examination Requirements. This is to ensure that photographs are taken close enough so the detail of the defect can be distinguished and from the same positions as in previous examinations so that a comparison can be made between successive reports. Feels self-explanatory, really, doesn't it, that one? So that is our rundown of the report. And as ever, please don't just rely on my abridged version, my recounting, respouting of the info. If you're really interested, the report is dead easy to get hold of on the RAIB website. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, okay, to close out the roundup this week, I'm going to briefly tell the story of why it is I do this. Some of you will be aware of this, but there there is a reason behind it. It's a bit of a personal section, though, so I won't necessarily be offended if you skip on through. There'll be no unpacking of a report or detailed technical explanations. But why do I make this podcast? Scene setting for you, then. Last week, as I was in the airport waiting to fly off to the waterlogged but beautiful city of venice with mrs signals and some friends i found a tweet on that their twitter or x or elon's plaything, whatever the name is this week it was a response to the new episode post for the james street episode nothing special just a new ep up post heads up to all of you that i put another episode out very similar to the one you might have seen for this episode and probably seen plenty of times in the past now, I get plenty of responses to the stuff that I put out there. It's overwhelmingly positive. Generally, I think you all like this podcast and understand the ideas behind it. But this one impacted me a little. It was not, well, it was not so positive. The response said, what a piece of work profiting from tragedy, apparently a railway manager, and then tagged in the RMT union's main Twitter account. 
Very short, very abrupt, and I must say entirely without punctuation. I'm, I'm not going to name the person. I'm. It's not a rant. It's a, not a vague attempt to sick followers onto him, although a few of you fine folks did seem to stick up for signals quite nicely on the post, which was very, very much appreciated, but I'm really not trying to incite a witch hunt. I just wanted to kind of address it a little bit. The thing that bothered me wasn't that he tagged the union into the post either or pointed out that I'm a railway manager. I'm actually fairly low down the pecking order in the latter respect, and there's plenty in my talk more senior than I am that are aware of my hobby. Not to mention, I know that there's plenty of members of both of the main industry unions who listen, and I've Christ, I've even been previously retweeted by one of the general secretaries, so none of that really bothered me. Clearly, his intention in tagging them into it was to try and get me in some level of bother. I can't think of an innocent reason why that would have happened, but I'm not here to moan about the tweet. That's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. What I would like to do, though, is use this as an opportunity to sort of springboard off and talk briefly about why I do make these episodes, why I produce the podcast. And it's not to profit from tragedy at all. In fact, most of you know that I only got around to adding adverts onto here a few months back and any sources that were previously there pretty much just pay for the production costs of this podcast. And anyone who's ever used Adobe Creative Cloud will tell you that there is a cost associated to that. So if that individual who tweeted me has taken the advice several people gave him of actually listening into the podcast, I, I hope this will be helpful to you to understand why I do this. Illusions of grandeur and importance set aside, this podcast is clearly not big enough for me to be a uh, a money-spinning venture. And when I first started out, I thought I would get 40 or 50 people a year listening to my rambling. That was my expectation. And anything in excess of that has been an incredibly pleasant surprise. I started my adventure of looking at railway accidents by not looking at railway accidents by looking at aviation ones. At the time, I worked at an airport and watched a lot of air crash investigations, the TV series, also known as Mayday in other parts of the world. But then I got into rail. I'd read a few aviation accident reports and then thought, oh, there's rail accident reports as well. Let's have a look at them. And the first one I ever read was the one that dealt with Great Heck. I loved the intricate detail with which the report explained things, the way that you could fully understand the incident, start to finish, the parts played by such small, individually insignificant factors in making sure that an accident took place, and the painfully close, just out of reach opportunities for it to have been avoided. I found it fascinating, and found myself eager to tell people about it, which in itself is fully reliant on other people around you finding the same thing interesting, and that is challenging at times. I did, however, come to realise that when it comes to talking about railway accidents, there is generally more or less two extremes. One is the full report with all the technical detail, um, sometimes not that easy to digest. The other side of that spectrum is the one-page news article on BBC or Sky News or a Wikipedia article. And they are, they will tell you what happened, but they won't give you the detail. They won't tell you how it happened. It is a what, not a how. They will say, 
the driver passed a signal at danger. This, you know, they'll they'll give you the, the the factors, but they won't go into the same level of detail, and you won't come out of it being able to understand anything like what you will if you read the report. But the reports are difficult to read, even for me, and I've read a lot of them. They are at times really difficult to digest. Aviation-wise, there are programs, like I said, seconds from disaster, Mayday. And that will give you an hour long. Um, it'll tell you the story of the accident. It'll be dead easy to picture what's happened. And then they'll go into all the detail about the investigation. Then you can come out of an episode of that program and you can understand it. You've seen it. You've heard it. But for real, that doesn't really exist. There are one or two episodes of programs like Seconds from Disaster, which cover train crashes. There is a really good episode of Seconds from Disaster that has the, the, the well, they call it the Paddington train crash, but it's Labrick Grove is what they're referring to. But there isn't a full series of railway accidents. They're far and few between. So I decided in uh, probably a moment of insanity, I was going to try and fill that gap by creating YouTube videos based on the reports, but hitting the same detail level that Seconds from Disaster manages to achieve for aviation. Translating it into a way that people wouldn't need complex industry or engineering knowledge to understand. So I sat there, I downloaded Blender, a 3D modeling um, application to try and make some graphics. And I lost a month or two falling into a pit hole of trying to learn to 3D model a class 91 locomotive. And do you know what? Actually, it ended up looking pretty good. I self-taught self myself the software, but that's not what I'd set out to do. And if I was going to spend a month or two making loco, I'd have to spend another month or two making the carriages and then who knows how long making the scenery. And that wasn't going to put out what I wanted to put out. So I shelved the idea for a while until a little bit later, I started to get into podcasts, um, particularly one um, really good podcast. And the name is escaped me for a second and I didn't write it in my script for some reason. Disaster Area. That's the one, Disaster Area. And it's by a podcaster called Jennifer Matteris. And I started listening to a few of her episodes and thought, well, this works as a concept. So I said to myself one day that this might be a medium that I can use instead of a YouTube video. And I did. I recorded an episode on Great Heck. And that was 50 episodes ago and we're still going. That's how it came into being. But why do I do it? There's really a few key reasons. The first is that I enjoy it. It is when you boil it down to the very, very base level, it is a hobby. It's me doing something that I enjoy. I like writing the scripts. I like reading them out to you. I like researching it. I find the subject matter as interesting today as I did when I read that first report into Great Heck years ago. Um, in making the podcast, I'm still constantly learning about it as well. I'm really, really not one of those podcasters that falls into the category of being an expert who shares their knowledge with the masses. I am an enthusiast who learns as I go and shares that with you. Yeah, I've picked up quite a bit, but I am working from a script that I've written for a reason. 
Secondly, I'm doing this because I think it's important to remember the lessons that are learned. Corporate memory is a term that's been used in more than one report and article over recent years. And for those who are either already on the railway or aspire to be one day, I think material like mine does a good job of helping to explain the why attached to many rules and processes. We have a very safe railway and deaths are thankfully few and far between, but there is absolutely no harm in telling the stories of those who've lost their lives in the past to keep the logic behind those processes and rules alive. Finally, and probably what is now one of the most important reasons is you. You listening to this podcast right now, whoever you are, wherever you are, and do you know what? Why ever you listen to it. Like I said earlier, I started doing this thinking nobody would be interested. Literally nobody. I thought all of my downloads would be sympathetic friends or family seeing what I was doing with my time. But here we are a few years later, and that is now not the case. It really isn't the biggest podcast on the planet by any stretch of the imagination, but over 200,000 times now, the episodes I've put out have been downloaded by people. Social media channels I've got are always growing and I'm always interacting with people. I've had conversations with people in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia about the industry, about the episodes. And the map of download locations includes places like Japan, India, South Africa. And you know what? There's even two downloads from Zambia where I am pretty confident that might be a VPN. It is clear, though, that there is a group of people out there who do find this interesting, who do think it's worth listening to. So of course, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm really not big headed enough to use the word fans, but clearly the concept of the podcast works and it's far more important than I thought it was going to be back in 2020. So in closing, I guess, thanks for tuning in and turning up. And if anyone ever wonders or feels the need to ask why I'm doing it, this this is why I'm doing it. All of which brings me nicely to the end of this roundup episode. Thanks as ever for coming to join me as I look into the most current affairs of railway safety or the currentest of affairs in railway safety. Look, you can come and hang out with me in the virtual world of social media. As I've just said, I love that conversation. I love the interaction. Get me on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger. And you know what? If you are an email person, I have an email address as well. You can get me on daniel.fox at dfrealmedia.com. There are ways you can support the podcast if you do feel the need to. There's absolutely no obligation. It will always be free on podcast hosts. But uh, you can get over to signalstodanger.com forward slash support if you want more information. And remember, Patreon subscribers do get these episodes ad-free through Patreon as well. So you don't have to listen to the adverts if you are a Patreon supporter. That's it from me. So once again, until the next time you hear my voice, travel safe.